Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, Hireside Chatters. How are we doing out there? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And with so many mysteries about reality and life left to unravel, it's no surprise we know far too little about even our own composition. While academics still debate the nature or even existence of consciousness, we're seeing doctors emerge who treat systems of the body that are barely even acknowledged, with a cascade of positive results. The biofield, the chakra system, the things like our depleted hydrogen levels, So is it really any wonder that with so much more to learn about just the physical body, maybe the non-physical aspects of the self are just as complex, if not more so? Well, despite the hit-or-miss nature of channeled material, sometimes the right spirit connects with the right person and a wealth of information spills out that would be hard to glean from our limited vantage point, and we're flooded with a torrent of new data about whatever this soul school or human terrarium or reality sandbox seems to be, and what it really means to be human. And one such powerful connection occurred with today's guest, Dr. Tom Zinzer, when he was introduced to the entity named Jared. Back in the simpler world of 1987, Dr. Zinzer was a clinical psychologist and hypnotherapist working in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who was hitting a sort of wall with some of his clients and the problems they were facing. Frustrated with the lack of progress to the point of almost giving up, a part-time secretary in the office named Catherine overheard the right conversation at the right time and approached Dr. Zinzer with the prospect of dialoguing with an entity she was able to channel named Jared. Thankfully, Dr. Zinzer was open-minded enough to try and well-educated enough to separate the wheat from the channeling chaff and ended up embarking on a 14-year collaboration with Jared that helped hundreds of his clients, spawned an entirely new healing protocol, and gave Dr. Zinzer a spiritually guided, dense, and detailed masterclass on sights unseen, beneath the hood of reality, and the self, that few of us are lucky enough to get. And wouldn't you know it, Dr. Zinzer was kind enough to pay it forward and inform the world of Jared's deep insights through his book, Soul-Centered Healing, a psychologist's extraordinary journey into the realms of subpersonalities, spirits, and past lives. He's since written two other books that function more as industry textbooks for professionals who want to take this work forward, entitled The Practice of Soul-Centered Healing, Volume 1, Protocols and Procedures, as well as the complimentary Volume 2, Navigating the Inner World. 
It's a wild ride I think you'll all be happy to take, so let's get into it. The entity detaching doctor and soul-centered spiritual healer, Dr. Tom Zinzer, welcome to the higher side. Well, Greg, thank you much. I was looking forward to our talk today. I've listened to a few of your interviews, and <laughs> I hope we can cover some territory. Yes, I think we can. This is going to be great. I actually heard about your work through reading the latest book of my friend and colleague Alex of the Skeptico podcast, Why Evil Matters, and it was the section about your work that I found the most interesting. I went back and listened to your interview with him and was even more intrigued, and then after reading the book, I was just blown away. To read such lengthy, detailed transcripts of your conversations with Jared as he explains the segments and hierarchy of the soul, as well as 3D reality itself, it's a lot. But outside of the cliff notes I was able to give there in the intro, maybe walk the people through how this situation arose, because it's clearly a pretty unique situation that you got yourself into. Well, it's going 1987. It's going backwards. <laughs> um, I know. I started out as a psychologist and at the time was working with a number of clients diagnosed with multiple personality, now called dissociative identity disorder, and an approach to hypnotherapy called ego state therapy that recognizes that each of us has subpersonalities. And my focus was on helping clients to resolve trauma, usually from childhood and adolescence. And I used this ego state approach for these dissociative conditions. Once I got into working with multiple personalities and subpersonalities, it was still becoming difficult in the hypnotherapy it seemed that as we approached a person's really deep trauma that had been kind of protected, split off, it's almost as if the closer I got to those traumas, the more blocking, interference, dead ends, it seemed. That's the position I was in, as you talked about, that this wasn't good for my clients, wasn't good for me to keep hitting dead ends. Right. But it did happen, as you said, uh, Catherine overheard a conversation I had with a colleague and it involved kind of paranormal situation. And so she did come back to me a couple of days later and told me about Jared and asked if I would like to have a session with Jared. And up to that point, I never thought of having some kind of channeling session or session with a medium. I, just was not part of my thinking. I was pretty much an agnostic. But I took the opportunity to have a talk for one hour. And Jared gave me information in that session that kind of blew me away. It had to do with a spirit attachment with a client I was working with. And when I went back to that client the next week in our therapy session, I began to phrase my questions and my approach as if that, in fact, was the case, that there was some kind of entity attached. And at that point, this entity began to communicate clearly with me and 
as I asked questions, I would get responses, and this was not happening before with this client. This is, this is one of the dead ends I kept running into, and now all of a sudden, I'm in communication back and forth with this entity. So that's where it started in terms of getting into these other dimensions and having Jared, who told me, not necessarily that day, but within a couple of our sessions, that he did read a client's soul in present time, which meant that what was happening between myself and the client in the session was something Jared would have access to. And so the next time I would meet with him, we would be able to talk about what happened in that session and what got in the way or what came forward to block. And probably about after the third time I asked Catherine for a session, she and I did agree to have a collaboration where she would channel Jared. So that started this 14-year kind of journey. Hmm. That's a great summary. And I'm sure people listening have all sorts of mixed feelings about channeled material, but because of your professional background and a roster of clients that you were seeing that were having trouble up until Jared's consultations, it seems like you were able to validate his advice pretty quickly. That first session seemed pretty validating, but I'm sure there was still some doubt. Was this something when you got more confidence in this, was it something that stacked up or was there a watershed moment where you just knew there was no going back, that he was legit and this was the real deal? That, I don't remember a specific moment when that happened, but it came pretty early, probably after the third or fourth session with Jared. And he gave me more and more information about different clients and different difficulties. And it was all working. I mean, the communication with different personalities, the communication with certain spirit entities, you know when you're communicating with someone. You know when things are making sense back and forth. And I was able to enter into dialogues with these subpersonalities, with these spirits, during the sessions, during hypnosis sessions. And at some point, it's just, this is real. I am communicating someone or some entity here. So it was probably a little bit, like you said, stacked up gradually, but fairly quickly coming to the point where this was the real deal. Mm. So provocative. And let's give people some more details about the contact protocol. Catherine would go into a trance and you would ask questions that were answered in a automatic writing fashion in the beginning, but they elevated to verbal channeling where even her voice changed. Is that right? Yes. We started out, the first three meetings with Jared were done with Catherine doing automatic writing. So we would sit at the table together. I would ask a question. Catherine is in trance. I would ask a question and she would start writing on this paper, and I'd be reading that as she wrote, and then I would ask my question verbally. But after about three or four automatic writing sessions, Catherine told me she was receiving the sense that she could communicate verbally if I wanted to. 
And I told her I'd be more than happy to do that as soon as she was ready. So probably about the fourth or fifth time I communicated with Jared, it was verbal. And man, that's when it really took off. I mean, you can cover a lot of territory verbally in dialogue that automatic writing took a lot of time. <laughs> uh, so that was a big change. And yes, Jared's, the demeanor, the emotion, the the voice, it was all, it was Jared. So it was, for me, very distinct. Mm. Wow. So Catherine, she had an experience in her youth where she went to do some writing and felt the presence of another intelligence trying to write through her. And she shut it off for many years, I understand, until finally opening up to it later in life. And this was Jared. But did Jared ever really comment on why he was so connected to Catherine, pretty much seemingly since childhood? Well, two things. One is early on with Jared, he did say to me that each of us, each soul that incarnates here does have at least one spirit guide in their life. And Jared was Catherine's personal spirit guide. So he had been with her, I think, for her entire life as her personal guide. Hmm. Well, did you ever get a sense of why some people have a stronger connection to these guides? Because using the term spirit guide, it makes them seem like their whole purpose for existing is to guide an individual. Yet so many of us are completely ignorant of our own spirit guide. So it seems like an odd existence to try to coach someone who doesn't even know you exist. And I just wonder, what is it about some people who have this connection to the point of actually being able to channel a guide and others not? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening would love to be able to strengthen that connection if they knew how to do it. Well, I think, Greg, that's a tough question first in terms of our culture. Mm -hmm. And this kind of information, this kind of viewpoint, these kind of beliefs or way of looking at reality are not very well accepted officially in our culture. Even to talk about these kinds of things in a public official way is frowned on or brings kind of negative feedback. But I would say that many people who have some psychic ability may be aware of a spirit guide. But I know that in my work with clients, working with someone's guide became pretty much a basic routine thing. So my clients may not have been aware of or known about spirit guides when we started, but they became knowledgeable or experienced that as our sessions continued. So I would say it's more on one hand, you have people who are psychically more sensitive than others, maybe. But on the other hand, our culture does not promote either mm -hmm. the kind of exploration. They are there if one begins to look into it. Fair enough. And I agree with you. It seems like this is a pretty empowering paradigm, and it seems like the structure 
of our culture really doesn't want people to feel empowered. They would prefer you just feel comfortable with your job on the assembly line, putting on bottle caps and don't ask too many questions, especially about the spiritual nature of your existence. Yes, spiritual outside certain parameters, like what a number of religions or churches set up. And yes, they kind of keep you uh, in the lane. And to begin to delve into this kind of reality, you are talking about something that is quite empowering to individuals. Mm -hmm. And I have some suspicions like you are voicing that there are other powers that don't necessarily want people to wake up to this. Right. Um, so, yes, it's a touchy subject. <laughs> it is. But we do get an indication the further we look back into time that it does seem like there were eras where this was more of a part of everyday life that People acknowledged that there was an unseen world and that we interacted with it regularly. Indigenous cultures that really don't have a voice on the main stage still feel that way and live that way. And that's kind of interesting because clearly somebody knows something or it would make its way into our society. But there was a part where you asked Jared about the nature of himself. And he said, Jared is a teacher of persons to stimulate growth of the soul in order that a person may grow towards the light. I am a high-level guide interested in growth through the attainment of loving attitudes on earth. I have lived in a level of spiritual existence only. I have not been an earth dweller, but I have great interest and love for the loving natures of earth-experienced persons, and so have elected to be a teaching guide to you there. I am not good at fortune-telling, table-wrapping, or the Michigan Lottery. And I love it. Jared's got jokes, but that is some pretty interesting context for what he even is. Well, Jared, from the beginning, said that he has been a guide the entire time and has acted in that kind of position. And that means involved with a number of incarnate souls over time. So... The interesting thing he did share with me at one point is that he has never lived an incarnate life on earth, but he had, he said, materialized the body a couple times just to experience that. Wow. So that, that was quite, quite interesting to me. Yes, I did have a section later in this outline where I was going to ask you about that because there was a point where uh, you had a, a dialogue with him about just such a thing. Can souls or can spirits manifest physically? Uh, and he did say, yes, it basically goes, they're able to manifest physically. Yes. Without reincarnating. Yes. Well, that's a pretty high level ability. Yes, it is. Jared went on to then talk about how dark souls with high-level awareness and ability are able to approach the light directly for the purpose of becoming energized and then returning to the darkness. Enough of these energized souls acting in concert, then, could generate the energy needed for a dark soul to cross the boundary and manifest a physical body. And that is so interesting. Obviously, people see strange things they can't explain from time to time. Maybe this is what they're seeing. 
it's one possibility, but I tell you, there are, there are a lot of possibilities. Um, reality is so much more complex and layered and full of all kinds of things than, than most of us are aware. But yes, dark souls, given the right conditions and circumstances, can, with enough energy, manifest physically. Mm. But at the same time, I would say that even more are those people who will tell you stories of how spirits of light have manifested physically to intervene, to help, to protect. There's many, many, many incidents where people feel they have been saved and helped by these guides. There's many, many of those. So I would say even that is even more likely the case than the dark souls who, you know, they're pretty limited. So this does not come easy for them to cross to this side and carry out things. But it happens, yes. Well, this context kind of makes that phrase ascended masters sound a little less cheesy because people do talk about that and I'm always kind of on the fence about how much credence to give it, this idea of, oh, Hermes and Thoth, and do, through different eras, we have these beings that come down and teach us, but it seems like Jared would say that's very much possible. And has been the case, I think. Right on. Yeah, it's just, it's wild. And the book is great because you even have diagrams that help to illustrate the complex components of a person that Jared laid out, but help the listeners understand their own composition here. It almost seems like just as our physical body is made up of separate parts that make the whole, or that the human body could really be called more of an ecosystem rather than a singular unit, the unseen spiritual aspects of ourselves seems kind of similar in those ways, right? I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> yes. We are multi-level and multi-conscious beings. But again, in our culture, it is the ego-conscious level that is emphasized. It's almost limited to being who we are, that ego-consciousness. So our culture, again, presents a pretty narrow picture of who we are or what we are. That's one of the things Jared taught me over the years is just how multi-leveled and multi-conscious beings we are. Mm -hmm. It seems like based on his descriptions, we have our soul supreme, and then beneath that, our higher self, and then our conscious self, of course, that we operate reality in. And there's kind of a shell around that even that you call the protective self, and then like a soup in our subconscious of ego states and subpersonalities, even past life ego states, earthbound spirit attachments and dark soul attachments gets to be quite a lot. Well, it does. And it's one of the reasons I understood why I got so stuck before Jared. Things you can run into, the things that do occur with people, immensely complex, multi-leveled, so I understood pretty well why I couldn't get past so many of these blocks. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, and talk to us about how sub-personalities or ego states are formed through even small traumas or overwhelming experiences when we're young and how they affect us in our lives because it seems like once they're born into existence, they're kind of a part of us until we address them. Yes, and they're a part of us even after we address them, only they start living in a nicer place. To start with the subpersonality, the understanding is that when the conscious self is in a situation which the person can no longer tolerate consciously, it's too painful, it's too frightening, it's too confusing. When the conscious self is overcome with that kind of distress, fear, and pain, the protective part of the mind, which we can talk about, but the protective part of the mind will be triggered. And in being triggered, will create a subpersonality to take over. Uh, when that person can no longer tolerate it, the protective part will trigger the creation of a subpersonality to take over in that experience. And when that trauma, when that crisis has passed, things have settled down, or the person has gotten out of that situation, then the subpersonality will move. They don't dissolve or disappear. They move to the unconscious level, and the conscious self then assumes consciousness again in the present. And at that point, then, you have the dissociated subpersonality existing at an unconscious level along with the conscious self. Now, the thing is, and this is so much an extremely important point that came through with Jared, these subpersonalities, I think in psychology, they're kind of thought of as one-dimensional memories. Jared taught me that these subpersonalities are conscious and alive, that I think of them now as psychic beings. So you can talk to them. They can understand what you're saying. They can communicate back to you. They know what they carry in terms of what happened. So when I work with them and I communicate with them, what we are wanting to do is help relieve them from the pain, distress, fear that they live in. To say a little bit more, these subpersonalities, they don't grow up. Once they've been created and have moved to the unconscious mind, they often are not aware of our present life, of present time reality. They kind of live in that world in which they were created, kind of like a bubble of reality. And in that bubble of reality, they are still carrying their distress or confusion or pain. So in the healing process, you can assist them to finally share what it is they've been carrying all this time. And once they share that, it's as though that painful experience comes full circuit now to the conscious mind my client will receive some information about 
what this subpersonality has been carrying, what it experienced. Once that sharing is complete, once it's come to the conscious level, that pain can then be released. And that is the whole point of the healing, is having those subpersonalities release the pain, because then they can come forward and look in the present and see that things have changed. It's not what it was when they were created. And there is a place of integration and light within the self that they can move to once they've released the pain. If they try to move into that integrated place of light before the pain's released, it will be uncomfortable, if not distressing, because the light will bring up their pain. So once they're released of that pain, though, they can move into that, what we call that place of integration. Wow. So this is what we're looking at. Those subpersonalities are most often created in childhood and early adolescence when the person has not really developed a very strong self-identity yet, has not really developed strong ego defenses yet, hasn't developed a kind of social persona to be dealing with other people yet. So they can be overcome. Children, early adolescents, can be overcome pretty easily. And these subpersonalities then, most of them are created in that kind of age range. But they can be created at any time. The person cannot consciously tolerate what's happening. So if somebody's in an automobile accident at age 35, they can have a subpersonality created in that experience if it's overwhelming. Hmm. Well, would you say that many of us have made these subpersonalities in situations that we aren't even consciously aware of as adults? Is there a way we can look inside of ourselves and see what kind of passengers we're subconsciously carrying along without seeking outside assistance? It's a very good question. There's kind of several maybe different ways of answering that. One is, yes, people can at least get a glimpse of these subpersonalities if they are willing to catch themselves when they are in the, in the midst of an intensive emotional reaction. Because these subpersonalities, when they are triggered, the person, the conscious person, often is not sure of why they are so emotionally distraught or reactive. So if you catch yourself in kind of an intense emotional reaction, it seems disproportionate to what's going on, or it feels like it's coming out of nowhere, at that point, if one could, they could sit back and reflect on that, and they may very well be able to get on to the path that leads back to the base of that reaction. So let's say you had a child five years old, they got slapped, and yelled at by a parent who just kind of wasn't doing well, that child could create, or the protective part could trigger the creation of a subpersonality who was so frightened by 
what the parent was doing, feeling maybe that love being threatened, that a subpersonality is created. 20 years later, they may be in a situation where there's an authority figure that comes at them, a boss or maybe even an older parent, the now older. And that subpersonality can be triggered because something is happening that resembles or kind of matches their traumatic experience. So if a person catches those kind of reactions, they may be able to kind of trace back or get a feeling at least where this is coming from. They may be able to look at methods, meditative methods, to help them follow such a path when it occurs. The problem, and this is a lot of where the hypnotherapy comes in, the approach, is that these subpersonalities are created originally to protect us. That is, they're created so you do not remember what happened. They're created so you don't feel what was going on. So years later, if you try to get in touch with that, it may be very difficult to get through the protections that were created to keep you away from this in the first place. So again, that's what I was running into. Hmm. The protective part of the self, before I met Jared, and I was doing hypnosis, I think the protective part saw me as a bull in a china shop. <laughs> because I'd be sitting down with the clients trying to address trauma. And I think the protective part was saying, wait, wait, hold on a minute here. You're not going to be getting there. <laughs> they were protecting. That's what they were created to do. So that's a difficulty when you're doing self-work, is you really have to be able to wear two hats at once. One is the one who's wanting to ask the questions. But the other hat is that part of you that experienced something that was overwhelming and is not necessarily going to want to remember it or come forward or other parts of the self don't want it to come forward. Or if there are outside attachments, they may not want to allow those parts to come forward. And that's where you really run into the complexity and the difficulty of healing these levels of the self. But there are people who can do that themselves. I just don't know how frequently mm -hmm. that's the case. Mm -hmm. And let's get a more detailed concept of the higher self. Obviously, we're all familiar with the term, but I like this quote where you say, the soul is a repository for all knowledge and all information, past lives and present. And when I speak of the higher self, I'm usually speaking of the soul in activity. So, it's kind of like our soul is our library and the higher self is the librarian. Is that a good analogy? Let me think about that a minute. <laughs> the soul is a repository, carries all of its experience. Mm -hmm. And we're talking there not only through maybe many lifetimes, but there are other dimensions of reality that a soul is involved in, which we would not be involved in during our Earth conscious lifetime. So the soul is the repository, and these are Jared's words. Mm -hmm. 
the soul is the repository of these experiences. And then he called the higher self or the spirit the active part of the soul. And it's that active part that is present in our life. Again, some people are very aware of it. Others are not at all. That we each have a higher self. And Jared described that originally. He said, it's as though the soul projects a piece of itself into that person when they are born and into the present life. So it's as if you have an active part of the soul with you in your lifetime that is able to function in a number of ways. And it has a great deal more knowledge, not only of one's present life and what has happened, but also in terms of past lifetimes. And if the higher self does not have that when you ask the question, the higher self is capable of moving into the soul to review and find information that may be necessary for the healing that's underway. The higher self also has the ability. Well, Jared talked about higher self as our direct connection to our soul's light and to the divine light. That the higher self is always that connection. So the higher self is able to see these subpersonalities, is aware of them. And if the subpersonality gives permission, higher self can send light love energy to that subpersonality. And this is another very, very powerful thing, is that when that subpersonality feels that light, 99.90% of the time, in my experience over thousands of sessions, once the subpersonality touches and receives that light, it changes completely. It, it comes on board with the healing process. It may be frightened about the sharing, but it's willing to start moving through that. Higher self can stay with that subpersonality even while it does its sharing to give support. The higher self is immensely, immensely helpful in the healing process. And there are a lot of people, more so than with subpersonalities, a lot of people do, I think, feel their higher self, feel their connection to that soul light, know that they're more than just this physical body. But higher self also has a great deal of ability to assist. Higher self can be in touch with one's high self, higher level guide. So in the healing process, when I have a client in trance, I will ask higher self, higher self, are you aware of John's high level guide at this time? And if I get a yes, then that's great. I'll include that guide at times in the healing. If higher self says no, I'll ask higher self if it's willing to make contact with that high level guide now. So the higher level guides also have that kind of connection with higher self, and they can work together as well. 
So these are the three probably central parts getting with soul-centered healing is working with the protective part to make sure it's in agreement that we do the hypnosis, that we go inside. And then making contact with higher self to make sure higher self is open, in good connection, able to communicate clearly. And once that's okay, then we'll begin to review the inner world for where the healing is needed. And that's when higher self may begin to identify these subpersonalities that are causing difficulty for the client. Again, just getting traumas triggered or getting afraid of things and having these subpersonalities triggered. So that's kind of the three first steps. The protective part, contact with higher self, and then begin to identify who's carrying the pain or the fear or the hurt. Um, so that's kind of a thumbnail sketch. <laughs> I love it. Clearly, we got a lot going on. And when it comes to these subpersonality parts of ourselves that are hanging out in the soup of our subconscious, as you say, they really have their own autonomy and free will. And it's through these parts of ourselves, these subpersonalities, that other spirits and entities can get their hooks into us, but they need some form of consent to enter our psyche. And you write, these did not have to be explicit agreements or even made at a conscious level. Most, in fact, were not. Most of these deals were made with ego states at an unconscious level. Can you tell us a little more about the tricks and the deals that these entities make to get the consent that they need? It's not always straightforward, as you say. Yes. And now we're moving into kind of a fourth important element, and that is the existence of spirits, discarnate souls. And these spirits, and again, our terminology is limited. We might most often, I hear, refer to as the astral plane, that these spirits existing at the astral plane, they also vary. And the three kind of categories that Jared gave me were earthbound spirits. And these are spirits who, when the person passed, they did not go to the spirit realm of light which is where we really ought to head to once we leave the body. And there are a number of reasons spirits will remain earthbound. And in that state, they can attach to a place, you know, maybe their home that they loved, it's, it's what they know. And that's where we would talk about a haunting or spirits present in someone's home or in some building. But the others, are what we would call attached spirits, where they attach to a person, not a place. And to go even further, a spirit may actually enter one's soul energy, their aura. And that's a little more serious, still earthbound, but a little more serious. Then there's what Jared called kind of the mischievous spirits. They have not gone to the light when the body died, but they also have more awareness of what's going on. And they do travel. 
and they can travel from person to person. They develop some awareness of how to engage with people who are incarnate, who are in the body, and they've kind of learned some of those tricks. And then you have the third kind Jared talked about, which are those souls that have become aligned with darkness. And one of the things that Jared said is every one of these are still souls. They are always souls of light. Even those who have gotten involved in darkness, maybe pulled deeper and deeper into darkness, Jared would say they, they are souls of light. And he said, as souls of light, they need the light energy. But they are not willing to go to the spirit realm of light to get it. So you've got earthbound spirits who usually are not aware of the spirit realm of light. They just try and stay close to earth, maybe with a family member or somebody who shares something that's a match for them. The mischievous spirits, they do know about the light, but they want to stay wrapped up here in these lower levels, the astral level, the earth level, and then the dark souls. And they are the ones have a lot of sort of tricks and knowledge about making uh, connection to people on earth. And I guess the best way to explain it is that they, boy, it's a big universe, Greg. <laughs> the earthbound spirits usually attach to someone because they share something in common. And the example that's used more often is if you have somebody maybe with an addiction to alcohol or drugs, they may attract a spirit who itself was addicted. In that sense, they form a match. And these matches between spirits and their experience and the people who are incarnate, they vary. So especially with children, you have a spirit who comes and is able to offer a subpersonality, offer that subpersonality a toy. Well, if that child takes that toy, that's an agreement. The soul has now engaged with that spirit. And the spirit takes that as a permission. If you've got somebody who's terrified and they're calling on help and they don't care who comes to help, a spirit may step in to engage. And then as time goes on, they may exercise more and more influence on the person. And then it becomes not so good. You've got people who use a Ouija board. Hmm. And then a lot of people are afraid of about the Ouija board. And they sit down when they're experimenting, and they're basically asking anybody who wants to communicate through the Ouija board, come forward. And that's a mistake. If you want to use the Ouija board, it's best to protect yourself, to request only high-level guides from the light who might be willing to communicate, Otherwise, you're giving an open invitation. And you don't know who's going to respond to that invitation. And once you allow them in, it's almost like 
an analogy on the physical level, it's as though you let in a bacteria or a virus. And once it's in, it may start to do some things on its own. It may, it may begin to take over more territory in that psychic realm. Yes. And I'm glad you used that analogy because as I was reading your book, I started to think about spiritual hygiene, kind of similarly to our robustness of our immune system. We can do a lot of damage to our immune system, and then we're affected by things that might not affect our neighbor who is a little more responsible with their immune system. And almost the same can be said about our spiritual self. If it's fractured, if it's damaged, if it's weakened, then we are more vulnerable to these things in the spiritual dimension. But the same entities might not affect our neighbors if they are taking care of themselves spiritually and engaging in some practice of spiritual hygiene. When I talk to occultists or magicians, they usually talk about the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram or some type of protection spell. And they talk about it in the sense of like taking a spiritual shower. We take a shower for our physical body every day, but we don't do anything for our spiritual self. And there are time-tested techniques that seem a little weird in modern culture that do actually help to provide us with some spiritual hygiene. Would you agree? Yes. There is a great deal more assistance and protection available from the light and those guides who assist us if we would use that. And I would say we're not even talking about having to set up formal rituals. But if you, during your day, continue to ask the light and continue to ask spirit guides, continue to ask your own higher self to surround you with light, not just for protection even, that's part of it, but also to help you kind of begin to live in accord with that high level divine light resonance. And to ask that assistance, I do it all the time. So, I, you know, if I'm going to take a trip, I'm asking the guys to surround my car with light. If I begin to feel a bit of a cold coming on, I will ask healing guys to work with me during the night. I will do that to my family, for my family and friends, asking guides. And it's what people call prayer. Yeah. And I think what's not clear to people is that's available to us. Those guides and that light, our higher self, that is all available to us. And we can be surrounded with that, connected with that day in, day out. So in some sense, you just have to ask. But on the other hand, People can get wrapped up in things that, that get to be dark. And people on the inner world, there can be parts that block one's guide from coming forward. Mm -hmm. Let's say that a, an 11-year-old had something happen, and it's so painful and frightening, and they felt betrayed, and they got angry at God as a little kid, the God, at least, that they were being taught. And a subpersonality was created, and that subpersonality now 
is angry at God, and that's where they live. And let's say that that subpersonality becomes aware of a high-level guide approaching to assist, or not just approaching them, but the person coming closer. That 11-year-old may keep the guide away, and the guide will not violate that 11-year-old's free choice to receive or not receive that guide's contact. Right. So that's one of the complicating issues and one of the powerful things about this healing is being able to identify what or who stops the light or blocks the light or is uncomfortable with the light or these dark souls that get involved with someone they'll make sure that someone on the inside of the person keeps blocking that light or stays afraid of it. Um, And I I think, Greg, that's one of the difficulties in talking about this healing process. Once you begin working with someone's inner world, we absolutely do not know what's going to present. Yeah. And everyone is on an absolutely unique soul journey through lifetimes. So the healing process, you just never know who you're going to find there. So you just have to work with it. Yeah, and that definitely keeps the work fresh, at least the day to day. And that's kind of something I thought was really interesting is that it seems like the premier feature of reality is choice. And we have the choice to go it alone But like you say, help is just a spirit call away. And of course, when it comes to Alex and his focus on your work, it was really about evil. And I think there's just so many fascinating things about this work. Evil is one of them. But it seems like because choice is the primary thing that the entire system wants to preserve and respect, that true evil, as opposed to darkness, is when an entity violates choice. And that is the worst thing you could do in this reality. Maybe it doesn't even have a a negative connotation. Like maybe you think you're like an overbearing parent, perhaps could like really take that to an extreme degree and put their kid in in a bubble and never let them experience anything out of their own fear. But anything on the spectrum that can be defined as limiting choice is what Jared would consider to be evil and the greatest violation of one's experience. Is that right? Well, you know, I would qualify, Greg, because this is one of the issues I struggled with as I began to talk with Jared about this. When we're talking about that free choice, Jared's communication to me is that the creator, the light, call it God, whatever you want to call it, guaranteed the absolute free choice for each soul, that that is the soul nature. And when we talk about children growing up with their parents or adults getting into some kind of struggle with each other, if we tell the child they got to go to bed now and the child starts complaining or crying, they don't want to go to bed. Well, that's not violating their soul choice. The violation, 
as opposed to telling a child they have to go to bed or they got to go to school or is if you were to take abusive action to a child and your intent is to make them submit, if your intent is to control them in a way that you know they are terrified and will do what you tell them to do. So that issue of intent and the depth of control you want to carry out over someone. And so it has to be distinguished from, you know, being a boss who's telling an employee they do need to do such and such this way. That's not a violation of their sole choice. The person could say, okay, well, I quit. So I would just make that distinction. In violating the sole choice, you're talking about a deep kind of action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's complex. And I am curious to the extent this modality has expanded. The results should speak for themselves. And I know that you have other books aimed at professionals. Is the field expanding? This protocol of soul-centered healing are more practitioners operating from the book of Jared? Well. I've just finished a first level training of some hypnotherapists and I've just posted a notice. I'm announcing I'm going to start another training course for hypnotherapists. However, because of the depth and complexity of this, this is a training that is very, very clinically intensive. So I am only training groups of like six at a time. Mm. And they are having to have at least one volunteer client that they're working with through this time. And then when we meet, I'll do instructional kinds of things, but then we will also be doing case discussion about what's come up in their work. So it's very focused on developing the clinical protocols and having them practice the clinical protocols. I've learned through experience that giving workshops and giving this kind of information intellectually, it doesn't do the trick if the person doesn't put it into practice and really have to practice it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the training is going on, small groups at a time, And in the time I have left here, I plan to do these kinds of trainings if there's the interest. Yes, I would love to see this sort of framework really just permeate out and change the whole field of psychology and change healing. If you ever train anybody in Southern California, let me know because I would love to seek out someone who has had this training. That's what's difficult sometimes is You know, I talk to so many guests about alternative modalities, and then it's like, well, there's nowhere to go to actually have a a person who's a professional use those techniques because they're just so under the radar. So, yeah, keep me posted if you train anyone out here. But, of course, people should pick up the book, Soul Centered Healing, if they really want to get into the details. You yourself aren't doing clinical work anymore, but you do have a website people should check out and know about if they want to follow up on this work, right? Anything else to leave them with? I don't think so. The books and the website and 
I do hope more and more practitioners are trained. The other thing, Greg, is in this day and age of COVID, it's also developed to do remote work with Zoom or Skype. Uh, that can be a little more difficult than working in person. But that also is a viable thing for a number of people. Not everybody is going to be conducive to that kind of remote work, but a lot of people are. So that fits in here somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so right now, the people I am training, they are working remotely with people because of COVID. And I suspect that I worked with people remotely before COVID too, but that was that wasn't my favorite way to work and it wasn't with a whole lot of clients. But as I've seen over the years now, it's something that can be done. Hmm. I love it. I will definitely keep that in mind as well. And this has just all been so fascinating. I really appreciate you coming here to break it all down. And big thanks to Jared, wherever he is. <laughs> and for you, take care and keep fighting the good fight. Well, and the same to you. I thank you again for the invitation, chance kind of to talk about my friend Jared. And just want the light to keep growing. Amen. It's been a pleasure. Me too, Greg. Oh, man, people, this is what it's all about. Spirit being insights from the other side. Provocative, provocative. I've had a lot of requests for Law of One material lately, and that stuff is interesting, but there's no shortage of coverage on it. This, though, is pretty Law of One adjacent. Jared's insights when it got to the big picture stuff in the second hour are pretty similar. And it's also new to a much bigger portion of this audience, I think. And this is a great case study of entity contact because Dr. Zinzer was actually able to help a lot of people with Jared's information. So it's a lot less likely that it came from the secretary herself. And really, it's not that complex. Western psychology is just working with a flawed model. It seemed like once the model was corrected, it wasn't too difficult to be effective in most cases that Dr. Zinzer was dealing with. It's really just another notch in the belt of traditional shamanism. That's something that came up in the last joint session show too, but I'm pretty convinced that shamanic healing is about as effective as anything can be. We've heard many stories of it on this show, but it keeps coming up for me in strange ways and... I look at what Dr. Zinzer's doing as essentially the same thing, as does he. We talked about that a bit. But healing disembodied parts of the self in the psychic or spiritual space that emerge out of traumas and just hang around in the soup of our subconscious, oftentimes with a real physical or mental ailment that corresponds to it. And honestly, I thought this stuff was a bit hokey and cheesy, even just like a couple of years ago. Yeah, maybe it's great for a spiritual cleanse or an emotional resetting or something vague and minor like that. But now, my opinions have changed. Stack up at least half a dozen guests who've brought little anecdotes up here and there. Stories of seeing people that have walked for the first time in years after visiting a shaman in the jungle, along with thousands of clinical cases we have with Dr. Zinzer. Well, I'm getting pretty convinced over here, you know? 
Outside of physical damage from an accident or something, or a poisoning with some sort of toxic chemical or being around mold or something, outside of those cases, I think this is probably the biggest factor that goes unexplored when it comes to our health. Going upstream far enough to heal the foundational cause and not just treating the symptoms that we see on our side. Pretty far out, I know, but this is where the roads have been leading me. And when you look up shamanic healing in your own area, I think you'd be surprised how much of it there is and the kinds of things it'll say on the website they're able to deal with. I was. So on top of the Law of One stuff, I had some other requests to get weird again since that last episode, and hopefully this scratched the weird itch. Reading detailed dialogues from a channeling session I would think qualifies, and there are a ton in Dr. Zinzer's book, and I tried to make sure that we got into a lot of those details in the interview. If you're only showing up for the first free hour week after week, you are missing out on a lot. Today, we talked about dark spirits and their use of spiritual anchors. That was really interesting. Sometimes these entities will give a person something on the spiritual plane, and if you keep it, then they can stay attached to you and leech your energy. Those were some of the most interesting stories to me. But we also talked about cults and organized soul cracking. The question of if spirits seek and find powerful people or organizations to work through. Some of the miraculous healing effects from Dr. Zinzer's soul work with clients. Why self-healing isn't as effective as consulting a healer. What Dr. Zinzer does when an attached entity rejects the light and won't leave. Some of the most powerful entities that Dr. Zinzer has had to deal with. Another fascinating part, how Jared described the beginning of existence and the nature of reality, the agreement between light and dark, the expansion, and finally we talked about comparing and contrasting the insights from Jared with Carl Jung's work. So no small shortage of awesome stuff. Join Plus very easily with the top link in your show notes. If you want to pay with PayPal instead of just a credit card, I don't do that through the site, but it is very possible to use PayPal through the THC Plus Patreon. I'm also down to barter. I trade. I take crypto, cash, check, or money order. Help me help you. But why miss half the show that you keep tuning into? $8 for five extra hours of this stuff is a pretty good yield. $8 doesn't get you much anymore. But if you need any sort of healing, consider a soul-centered healing approach. It does seem to work with no harsh side effects. Kudos to Dr. Zinzer for being open-minded enough to go down this road, brave enough to speak candidly about it, and for developing this whole system out of these conversations. It's no small thing. I hope you at least come away respecting Dr. Zinzer's work for these reasons. Jared, I gotta give it up to you for your role in all this. Kind of cool for him to have shared what he did and for us to maybe hear a few lessons from some sort of ascended master type here to help people get back on track. I'm into it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. I'm getting out of here. Your move, consciousness deniers, conventional paradigm propers, and gatekeepers of the old ways your fucking move when you see weird lights outside of your door something sits on your chest when you sleep 
might be a pattern you've been through before Oh, you might have those screen memories Darling, wait till we get some proof Play something. 